I want to start off just kind of going, uh, giving a quick recap of what we looked at last week. And that was what we looked at is what apologetics is, what it is not. And then we also looked at some different methods. Uh, and then we went over some fallacies and kind of how to address these fallacies. Um, and then at the end, we kind of did a quick Q&A. So just to begin, I just want to see if there's any questions and I might be able to clarify a specific point or anything that we went over just within last week itself. Any questions? Well, I wanted to say some of the things that I didn't get to say last week. Okay. I'm not really a question, but more just uh, I like the fact that you went over all those fallacies, even though I'll probably never remember all of them. But I think it's helpful because it, it shows us the need to be consistent and truthful when we talk to people. You know, we, we were talking to Men's Fellowship on Saturday morning about how a lot of times people, when they do apologetics, it seems like they're not entirely truthful just to make a point to try to win their argument. Sure. You know, that's what we want to avoid. You know, so if we, we, we realize that there's fallacies out there, it'll help us to make sure that we're being completely honest and straightforward with people. You know, but if the truth's on our side, we don't need to bend anything or, you know, try to make it work. You know? Exactly. So, yeah. Um, I appreciate that, you know, so I think that you encourage everybody to make sure you're being truthful in everything you say. Sure. You don't need to be misleading. Sure. You know? Now, in line with what Chris said, last week I handed out some sheets just going over the different fallacies. If you no longer have it or want a copy, uh, let me know and I'll get you a copy. And really it's just going over kind of what they are, the definition, and so forth. Um, and so this week, what we're going to be looking at really, because of time, I, we have two sections. We may not be able to get to the second section. And... Because of the impact of it, I don't want to skip it. So what we'll do, if we don't get to the second section, we will uh, go over it in the third week. Um, so this, this may go quick, uh, but I don't want to speed through the second part. Now, this being said, and again, last week I went over the different methods that have been used. And people have asked me and continue to ask me, what method do I use? And sometimes people are, are very quick to respond to that. That's why I'm a classical guy, or, or I'm an evidentialist, or I'm a presuppositionalist. And if I should say, well, to someone asking, well, I'm a presuppositionalist, then the second question follow-up was, are you a Vantilian, or are you a Clarkian, and, or are you a Bonsonite? And someone, they may or may not even know what those words mean. So what I want to do, I want to be very careful and just simplify it. And so here's the method I would label myself. I label it the biblical method. And to me, it's just upfront and to the point. And so you don't have to know all these other arguments. And so that being said, I want to first look at our first subject, really. And I'm going to look at some contrasting ideas of what I would call traditional apologetics and how I believe it contrasts to the biblical method that we're going to be looking at. And a lot of my material I've uh, received from a person by the name of William McManus. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he wrote a book. It's called Biblical Apologetics. To me, I think it's probably the best book that I've written, written or read on the subject itself. Um, so I think, it's, to me, that's ideal. And so the first thing what we're going to be looking at is examining rationalism versus revelation. Now, in the upcoming weeks, we're going to be looking at the different types of revelation, but just for simplicity's sake, we're, I'm just going to kind of go over and contrast these ideas. Now, some apologists 
have concluded that apologetics is a rational pursuit. And by that, they mean that apologetics begins with and puts a premium on human wisdom or laws of logic. And really what they're talking about is sheer human reason and not divine revelation. And so I would say that when they're talking about that, they would say it begins with what man thinks rather than what God thinks. And so some questions about that is, is scripture our starting point? And should we grant the skeptic his presupposition up front and then try to prove the Bible is true? Are we trusting in the primacy of our mind or the primacy of scripture or the primacy of God's mind in defending the faith? And so what are God's views on reality versus our thought and logic? So I invite you to turn with me in the Bible to Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 55, 8, 8 through 9. And here we read, for God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So in light of this text, I would say that biblical apologetics begins with God's logic, his divine arguments, and his revealed theology. And so we must subject all human wisdom to God's mind as revealed in Scripture. And so that leads us really to a next kind of contrasting ideas, and that is philosophy versus what I'm going to call theology. Now, philosophy in and of itself is not a bad term. But I want to look at how usually it's been looked at, and I want to just kind of quote from some traditional apologists uh, that talk about philosophy. And they put, many of them put a premium on philosophy when it comes to the apologetic task. And here's some quotes from them. I'm not going to name all the names, but you, you may recognize them. Apologists or apologetics walks arm in arm with philosophy. He or she must be a good philosopher. It is non-negotiable and indispensable. Apologetics is the work of theologians and philosophers. Apologetics is the scientific vindication of human science. Apologetics deals mostly with philosophy. They would say real apologetics is reserved for the elite, trained, professional philosophers and apologetics needs to be discussed in the vortex of current philosophical discussions. I would say that no person can really dare to enter the area of Christian apologetics in a competent way without some mastery of the history of philosophy. And so I say, in stark contrast to that, is biblical apologetics is not primarily or secondarily for the philosopher. God gives strict warnings against the allure of philosophy. So if you would turn in your Bibles with me to Colossians 2.8. And so we're just going to look at this real carefully. And then as we go uh, further, I'm going to ask for some volunteers to read as well. But I'll, um, but I'll read this one. Colossians 2.8. See to it 
that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So this is kind of what I say of philosophy. Again, some people say the simple definition is that it's, it's wisdom. And there is some truth to that, but the question remains, what wisdom? Is it God's wisdom or is it human wisdom? And so like money, money in itself is not evil. It is being taken captive by money or the love of money that's evil. And so I would say the same thing with philosophy. It's not evil in itself, but when you're taken captive by it or you begin to love human wisdom above God's wisdom, I'm going to say you're in sin. And so another kind of a topic that I want to look at is what I will call pre-evangelism versus authoritative proclamation. Many within traditional apologetics have downplayed the role of evangelism in apologetics. Some state, some apologetics, they say they should consider the true heading of pre-evangelism. William Lane Craig states, evangelism has little, if anything at all, to do with apologetics. And he's in the continuing, one has stated a clear distinction between biblical witness and biblical defense must be made and maintained. That's what they would continue to argue. Sproul says, pre-evangelism is involved in the data or the information that a person has to process with his mind before he can either respond to it in faith or reject it in unbelief. So now that I've stated some of the quotes, I want to now to direct your attention to Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. So I want to see with what they said, is this true from a biblical standard? Um, may I have a volunteer to read Mark 1, verses 14 and 15? Go ahead, Juan. Now after that, John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So here, the question is, what do we need to do before we're engaged in the task of apologetics? Well, I would definitely say prayer, but what we don't need to do is trying to, you know, create a bunch of friendships and then, and then see that as trying to get permission to even talk about the gospel. We don't have to bake them a cake or any of that to earn their favor, to be able to proclaim the gospel. And so that's why when people say, well, we need to kind of set up apologetics, given the idea maybe a possibility of a theistic God, and then you start to witness. No, I see it as they work together. And so I'm going to call uh, the second heading kind of selective versus comprehensive. So traditional apologetics usually takes a strictly defensive posture. And as in, a, as in a game or a war, they would say it must be, I would say, as in a game or war, it must be done both defensively and offensively. Biblical apologetics entails advancing the faith, the faith in the face of opposition just as much as defending the faith. And Christ said he would build his church and not just defend it. And so I believe that Jesus commands his disciples to go advance and infiltrate the hostile world. 
in the power of the Holy Spirit to propagate the truth of the gospel. Uh, the Great Commission we know is going to be in Matthew 28. I won't have you go there, but I would like someone, if they would read Acts 1.8. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting is if you look at the history of the word nice in itself, it actually means not knowing or even foolish. <laughs> so I think it's interesting. Um, so Acts 1, 8. Anyone? Go ahead. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witness, witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So here, I mean, they're commanded to go out and I would say defend the faith. And this is, uh, they're given the power to do so. So we, and if you're a Christian today, you also have been given the power to make the truth known to people. And I think you start with the word of God. You don't start with your own logic or your own thoughts. You direct, you take your own thoughts and take them captive to the very word of God. Imagine you're in a scenario, a sword fight. They tell you you can only use a wooden sword. Well, you have a sword right here to use. Use it. <laughs> and so that goes to the next one, and that is selective versus, um, no, I'm sorry. I'm going to go into probability versus truth. Traditional apologetics has as, it, has as its goal the establishment of Christianity as a feasible religion in the eyes of the unbelieving world, and to argue for the plausibility and not the certainty of it. Some have stated it is the best hypothesis or the most reasonable compared to other views. Tim Keller suggests that the theory that there is a God who made the world accounts for the evidence we see is that it's better than the theory that there is no God. J.P. Moreland suggests that the Christian God exists at least is at least permissible. Hardy suggests that apologetics has as its goal to show that it is a credible religion and reasonable. Sproul even suggests, he says, that it shows the extreme plausibility that God may exist. And so, again, going back, should that be our approach as Christians? And I'm going to say, if you're going to employ biblical apologetics, then the answer is no. And so I believe that Jesus believed in knowing spiritual truth with absolute, unshakable certainty. If you just do a quick history of the word certainty through the Bible, you're going to see it all through Scripture, over and over. And think about this. A lot of people say, well, can you be certain about something? And then they say, well, you can't know things. Well, they're not even holding some, themselves to the same standard. If I should ask you a question, how many people were married today? 
and you raise your hand. Why do you raise your hand? Because you know what marriage is and you know if you're married or not. In, within an argument, you know, if someone says you can't know anything or blah, 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 you can simply ask them, sir, what's your name, right? And say, my name's Tom. And so what happens? You say, okay, Chris, or okay, Kevin, what's going to happen? They're going to interrupt you and say, I told you, my name's Tom, right? You say, okay, Samantha. And then they get even more mad, right? Why? Because they're holding to a standard, right? They're holding to the fact that they believe their name is Tom and they're willing to tell you. Well, how come we can't do the same thing with the truth of God's word? And I believe we can. And when we start to say things, you're basing it on a knowledge that God's revealed to you. And so I'd say that God tells us to apply our hearts unto his knowledge if we're to know the certainty of the words of truth. Um, let us go to Proverbs 22, 17 through 21. Proverbs 17, or Proverbs 22, 17 through 21. I'll read this real quick for us. Seventeen through twenty-one. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, and apply your heart to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips, that your trust may be in the Lord. I have no I have made them known to you today, even to you. Have I not written for you thirty sayings of counsel and knowledge? to make you know what is right and true, that you may give a true answer to those who sent you. I mean, the, God is telling us we have knowledge and certainty. And I'm going to cast my position on what he says rather than what the guy across the street tells me about knowledge. And so another topic is to look at novelty versus legacy. And in reading traditional apologists, we sometimes get the impression that apologetics formally began in the second and third century. Typically, they'll say it started with Justin Martyr. I went to Arrhenius, Tertullian, and was bolstered by Augustine, and that Thomas Aquinas kind of systematized this and put it together for us. And so, I would ask you, is this, is this when apologetics started? And I would say no. And there was actually, I believe, a, a two thousand, probably two, three thousand plus year of history of defending the faith. Uh, if you go to, um, we, I, I'm just going to give several verses out there. We don't really have time to read them, but if you go, actually, let's this one we will. Let's go to Romans fifteen four. Romans 15.4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. See what he's telling us in the former days. So they had hope in the former days. If you go through the history of the Bible, you can see John the Baptist had it. John 1.29, Jeremiah had it. Jeremiah 31, 31 and through 34. Daniel had it in Daniel 2.44. Ezekiel had it in Ezekiel 36. Micah had it. Isaiah had it. 
uh, Isaiah 9, 6. David, we read having it from Romans 4. Moses had it going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. You can go to Deuteronomy 18.18. Noah, if you want to kind of find out who were the heroes of the faith, you can go to Hebrews 11.1 and you'll see this. And so these were men who had faith and defended it with zeal, and yet even they were criticized. And there is a parallel of Isaiah 8. 11 through 15 and 1 Peter 3:15 about not fearing and and setting apart the Lord in our heart. And so I believe that God has preserved a legacy for us to model that stretches all throughout the course of history. And so kind of a last one um, before we get into some Q&A and I'll see if we have time to kind of go over um, the second part of it and that is what I'm going to call internal apologetics. And so this last one has to do with theism versus the gospel. Traditional apologetics argues that if one claims to be an atheist, we must start from scratch and argue for theism. They would see it as kind of a progression. You you start with the idea that there might be a God, and then you go to the God. And so the Bible, though, claims that if the unbeliever claims to be an atheist, then we give him Christ in the form of the glorious gospel, for that is his greatest need and the only power that can save his soul. Going back to what Chris um, was talking about earlier, Romans 1.16 says it's the power of God uh, to salvation. Um, if someone would uh, read Galatians 6, Galatians 6.14 for us. I think this text really just highlights how important it is, really, in understanding that it is God who awakens the mind. It's not our appeal, again, to all the different things that we can go up and come up with. It's, it's God's power, and I believe this is his sword, again, to make that known. And so before we get into the second subject of internal apologetics, uh, a few questions. And this one is... Um, let us actually quickly look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. 2 Corinthians 10, and I'll read this here. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but of divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So this being said, in, in light of the text, how does this look in our application of apologetics? Mm-hmm. 
thinking bring their thinking? I think all thinking. Yeah. We don't want to bring our own thinking under the obedience of Christ in order to persuade others. Mm-hmm. Because if we start essentially with allowing them to dictate how we're going to pursue the argument, then I would say we've already begun to fail in the very beginning itself. We don't, I wouldn't want to allow my enemy to determine how I'm going to fight, especially in light of the fact that God has already told me how to do it, you know, with his word. Go ahead, Amelia. Um, I think that's right. And uh, I think, you know, what he says there about the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we can't resort to carnal means of defending the faith or tearing down arguments. We can't, you know, the good thing, you know, uh, you brought the um, logical fallacy. You know, that would be, I think, a form of arguing according to the flesh. Sure. Is engaging in logical fallacies, you know, um, uh, you know, obviously physical force, you know, and it's not. Right. It wouldn't go well evangelistic. Iron claw on him. <laughs> you bring out, you know, your, your literal Bible something. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so, yeah, I would say avoiding, you know, carnal means to spread the word of God, you know. And, um, and, and like uh, Chris said, you know, just basically the mandate to engage in argument. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not for argument's sake. Sure. But just a amazing thing is that he tells us, you know, that we, that we destroy these mm-hmm. speculations, you know what I mean, and that we demolish, basically, people's opinions mm-hmm. about the knowledge of God if they're not biblical. Sure. Now, that's a very, that's a very aggressive, that's a really aggressive language. If I were to ask you, and I kind of said this in the first week, uh, using the scripture, could you provide an example how we can destroy an argument without destroying the person. Well, I'd say we'd probably follow like Proverbs, uh, what is it, Proverbs uh, uh, what is it, uh, 24, 26, you know, where it talks about answer a fool according to his folly, let sure. him be wise in his own eyes. So probably the easiest way to disarm any kind of hostility would be to show him, you know, the folly of his own thinking. Mm-hmm. And then say, well, according to you, you know, this is true, right? And there's no absolute truth. Right, right. You know? Sure. And sometimes I think it's helpful to clarify if they say something and then we might get into a fallacy. So a helpful advice is this. Try and clarify to them what you believe they're actually saying. So you might how this might look like is if it's if my understanding is correct, you believe this and then allow them to say, yes, I do believe that or allow them to make a correction. So that it looks, you know, it's genuine, it's out of love, so that you don't misinterpret what they're trying to get across to you, so that when you respond, you respond with exactly what they mean. And so another helpful advice I might recommend is rather than saying, well, you this, you're this, you're this, you might even say, well, if I understand your argument correctly, your argument this, your argument this, rather than you because I think what we really want to center in is the argument itself, not necessarily the person. So, and that's why you can then say no matter what the argument, whether it's you or whether you have a multitude of people that agree with you, here is why the argument is incorrect, regardless of how many people adopt that view. 
And so in line with this, a second question is, what does it mean to put God on trial? And are we defending our hope or the existence of God himself? Go ahead. Well, I had a question going back to the last one you are talking mm-hmm. about. Uh, if somebody's atheistic, um, whether or not that needs to be addressed on the, on the front end. And it made me think about Paul in Athens where there's the, uh, to an unknown God, the mm-hmm. statue to an unknown God. And Paul's argument actually does start with talking about proving that there's a God and him as creator and doesn't get to the gospel. Well, I would say, again, I believe he does get to the gospel, but... It's with he may not necessarily start with the gospel is, but I think he he makes a beeline back to the gospel later, uh, and I think if you follow Acts twenty specifically, you see that. Now, again, that being said, is I believe we can start with certain commonalities. Now, that is not to say that um, we're neutral or believing them to be neutral. I do not believe that. But that doesn't mean that we can't start with something that is agreed upon. The question then may be is, what is that that we agree upon? And so then you kind of go from there. You're Um, saying that you want to start with something you agree upon? No, it depends. That's what I say. It kind of depends on, I might start with saying, hey, you and I are both humans. We're both made in the likeness of God. You know, and start going from there. But they don't believe that God exists at this point. Well, I would say I would believe I believe that they do. Now, and that's why I say I would still start with certain things that they do. Or I would say I would make the proclamation. I would proclaim it. We're both made in the image of God. We're both sinners. These things we have in commonality. Now, whether they would agree with that or not, I may or may not start with that position, but. You know, I would at least let it known, and then we can kind of go from there. And so that's why, the, with the second question, is what does it mean to put God on trial, and are we defending what we've been told to defend, our hope, or are we trying to defend the existence of God Himself, which we are told not to do? And so that's really what it comes down to: is employing your method when you engage in apologetics. What is your goal? Is your end goal to try and show them that a God exists? Or are you saying, no, that's not my, that is not my goal. My goal is to provide evidence for the hope that I have. Go ahead. Uh, you know, just to, I just wanted to point out in Acts 17, what's interesting about this is that already, even prior, the reason why they brought him up to the Areopagus, never say that word, <clears throat> And the reason why he they, they interviewed him in the first place is because of the ruckus he caused, mm-hmm. precisely because he was preaching Christ and the resurrection. Yeah. And so he wasn't just preaching when he said, this, you know, this is the God that I'm talking about. You know, I'm pointing out he's speaking of God. They already knew what God he was proclaiming, which was Christ and the resurrection. That's why after he talks to them, you know, at the end of chapter 17, he comes right back to the resurrection. Yeah, and I think, like you said earlier, he's kind of pointing out some of their own foolishness. And I think he's saying, look, you're already believing in an unknown God, but he was already declared Christ ahead of time. And so I think it's it's acceptable kind of to tell them, or at least refer to what they've already claimed to believe in your arguments. But again, I think you need to then redirect that back to Christ himself. Um, That sounds like like what 2 Corinthians 10 was saying, taking every thought captive to Sure. Almost to latch on and say, hey, this is what you're talking about here. 
clarifying. Show you how this only makes sense in Christ. Mm -hmm. You know. I also think real quickly, like my favorite apologetic answers in Scripture is like from a Jesus' statement where the Pharisees, you know, were attacking him, and he just gives these. You talk about biblical apologetics. Mm -hmm. These arguments from Scripture that you really have to know the Scripture to be able to do. But I mean, he literally shuts their mouth sometimes where it says they ask him no more questions. Mm -hmm. Make these arguments from the Psalms. You know, David calls him Lord. How Jesus son. You know, they literally just get shut down by. But there you're starting the presupposition that they had that Scripture was the Word of God. Well, even Jesus does it when he says, "You have heard it said," and then I say this. So he's already saying, "You've heard it said." That's a, a proclamation of fact. Um, and so this also goes with. He's talking to all kinds of people, both religious and non-religious. I mean, because you have a lot of people to gather. So he's not talking just this group only. He's talking to a broad group of people. Now, but that goes into a third question: When defending the faith, what have you appealed to as your highest authority? And since you have become a Christian, has it changed? Because all of us, even prior to becoming a Christian, we had uh, we appealed to a sense of some kind of authority, whether we may have said it's our parents, tradition, science, whatever that authority is, the presupposition is that we've all have prior commitments to how we come to a knowledge of truth. So my question is, is when defending the faith, what have you appealed to as your highest authority? Has it changed? Yes. I used to try to <laughs> I just told we had to jump off and you know just the virgin birth happened because you know it was of God you know and, and I couldn't no longer kind of stay on that track or you know uh, God you know saving the Israelites you know <laughs> through the Red Sea just you know just supernatural acts couldn't stay on that so would you when you first said that you said you appealed to reason so would it be safe to say that you appeal to reason right. as the ultimate authority? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, it's reasonable, you know, for God to be just mm -hmm. like that. But then, uh, not just <clears throat> that it's his word. His word is, is the ultimate authority. And mm -hmm. just uh, knowing that I couldn't reason anybody to be saved. Right. It was, it was the work of, you know, of the Holy Spirit. Okay. What I've used, and, and I'm certainly guilty of this myself, is... I mean, I, I can certainly remember a time that, you know, I was not a Christian. I can't really remember a time when I didn't profess to know Christ. I, I just can't. Now, that being said, so my, all, my appeal was always, now my appeal, and you can be a Christian and your appeal is not first and foremost the Scripture, although I believe it should be, because as we've looked at traditional apologists, typically their appeal to the highest authority can be laws of logic, can be reasoning, can be empirical evidence, and can be a host of different things. And so what I wanted to really just stress is that our highest authority is God in his word. So I can't, even though these, and then we're going to get later, look into evidences. I'm not saying evidences are a bad thing. But what I'm saying is physical evidences is not my highest form of authority. God's word is. And so that's where I just direct my attention back to his word. Go ahead. Yeah, can I you know, just kind of share a testimony of, uh, you know, when 
when I was a young Christian, I mean, that's, you know, evidential apologetics is all I knew. So trying to prove the existence of God through human reason, what you mentioned earlier, probability, mm-hmm. that was my number one goal in life. And so I was for years trying to stack up little bits of evidence more and more and more and more mm-hmm. and more, hoping that by the time I witnessed to somebody, I had enough evidence to where I could tell them at the end of the day, hey, you know, basically what I've shown you here today is that there's a really, 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 really good chance God exists. And then uh, a little bit later on, I had a, what I call an epistemological meltdown. Um, good thing, right? No. <laughs> it was in this case because I, I, I had a really dark night of the soul where I, I, I didn't know how I, why I knew anything. I, I didn't know how to prove that I actually knew things. Um, and that came through studying philosophy like J.P. Moore, one of the mm-hmm. greatest guys that you gave me, and, 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 and then I read the Bible like in Hebrews where it says you can have full assurance of faith, no doubting, no wavering. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that doesn't square with my apologetics, because here I am, I'm doubting, I'm wavering as to whether or not I can even prove the existence of God, or prove the existence of the fact that I know things. Mm-hmm. It just made no sense. It didn't, it didn't conform, conform with Scripture. And by the grace of God, I found myself in this little tiny Bible uh, tiny bookstore, and I found Van Til's little book, Defense of the Faith. I'd never heard of Bonson, never heard of Van Til, never heard of any of these guys, and the Lord just led me to this little yellow book by Van Til, <laughs> changed my life forever, you know, realizing that you, you know, exactly what, I don't want to steal your thunder, but, <laughs> you know, but exactly the whole presuppositional argument. Well, in line with that, I think it's a biblical argument. And I'll ask you, and then I'll, yes, sir. I'll get to you, is how do you think, how does the effect of sin Affect how an unbeliever thinks. Well, the effect of sin is very is, is the noetic effect of sin. Mm-hmm. We want to think apart from God. So that's exactly what Eve did. Tradu- man with before conversion wants before, to think. Yeah, before, yeah. I would say before conversion, even after. Yeah. <laughs> unless, unless we are corrected by the Word of God, man's natural propensity is to want to think apart from God. Instead of reasoning from the scriptures, they want to reason apart from the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah, which of course is impossible. Go ahead. I was just going to go back to Colossians, uh, Colossians 2 3, where it's referring to Christ, where it says, uh, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Mm -hmm. the reason he's writing that is to speak to the preeminence of Christ. For, I mean, he talks about Christ as all wisdom and knowledge, all power and authority, basically because if you would say younger believers and they're taken captive by a hollow and deceptive philosophy and by worldly ways and mm-hmm. saying, don't worry about worldly ways don't worry about these um, uh, basically clever arguments and stuff that he's saying that people have look to Christ as your final truth your final authority, your final everything and don't worry about what the world says and these clever teachings and philosophies, so he's appealing to Christ as final authority period if and above things go ahead Chris for me, a lot of studying the presuppositional apologetics, so I almost like Neil just made the distinction um, in talking about the fall of man and how it affects you. Even after conversion, um, our minds can still fall back into this type of thinking, right? Sure. So for me, this always being redirected back to the authority of the scriptures has been helpful for us, not just to, you know, in our apologetic, but even for ourselves. Like, just this is helpful, you know, to, to remind us again to come back to the scriptures and our authority. Sure. I'm going to follow up quick, kind of, again, these are all kind of related. 
And so must we use only the criteria set by an unbeliever? So if you're about to engage in a discussion, they say, well, you can't use the Bible to try and prove the Bible, and you can't use all these other things. Oh, and furthermore, you can't use your own personal experience. So we'll just throw that out too. And so they give you the criteria that they will accept. So then the question is for you, when you're on the street, in the neighborhood, at work, wherever you are, and you find yourself in that position, because I, I believe it will happen. <laughs> and so they say, well, I'm only going to accept this, this, and this. So the question is, will you accept that? Why or why not? So if you say why not or never, what would you say? Why would you say why not? That's our whole foundation of truth. Gotcha. Not only that, but if your goal is to preach the gospel, point back to Christ, you use whatever tools necessary that God's provided you to get to that point, right? Right, and I would say definitely because I believe the task of apologetics is not to try and prove the existence of God. And I think that's why people employ a method that is unbiblical because they believe that that is their end goal. It's not my end goal. My goal is to give a defense or an answer for the Christian faith that I have, not in the existence of God, because but Romans you, 1 tells us they already know God exists, whether they say it or not. Terms, if you agree to their terms, then basically you're just trying to win an argument, right? I mean... Um, you may. I mean, uh, there again, I don't, I don't want to always say what the motive is. The motive can be... Uh, a, a very friendly and almost loving motive. I just think that there is a, a better way to do it. Go ahead. Uh, you know, again, that, that verse in Proverbs come to, comes to mind, you know, Proverbs 26, I think it's 5. You know, we Proverbs. Show, no. <laughs> somewhere someone has said, right, uh, you show them the, the foolishness of their own argument, you know, because maybe the way to deflate that may not be, yes, I will use the Bible, you know, mm-hmm. but maybe to show them, you know, that what they're doing is exactly what they're telling you not to do. Sure. You know, so you just ask them a simple reason, a simple question like, uh, you know, do you believe in human reason? Mm-hmm. Or, well, I would ask that you not use human reason to prove the existence of human reason. Yeah, could you have an argument, a debate or an argument about whether words, words themselves exist without using words, right? Can you do that? I, I Maybe you can. I don't know how it's done. I've never been able to see how it's done. So that's the thing. I can't, I, I find it, you know, someone's trying to true, pro, provide evidence for the existence of God and then yet will say, well, I'll just act like he doesn't exist. For you to even be able to do that, a God has to exist. And so, I, so and then that kind of leads to another question is um, kind of what he was saying. Now I want to, and then we'll kind of wrap it up is what are some ways in which you can demonstrate to someone that they actually do know something? Um, now, that being said, sometimes this has happened, and I've seen a guy who would claim himself to be an agnostic. He's very familiar with the presuppositionalist argument. He's read a lot. So what he did in an attempt to kind of make it look silly is he used the exact arguments within presuppositionalism and just renamed it flying spaghetti monster. So he said, how do you account for logic without the flying spaghetti monster? How do you account for the laws of reasoning? How do you apply, you know, how, why is the laws of non-contradiction reasonable? He said, without all that, without the flying spaghetti monster, you can't do it. So, and we were going back and forth because again, he's familiar with it, but I didn't start it off with, he was just 
again, it was kind of on Facebook, it was showing how you shouldn't even use that. So my question, I get, later went back, and all I asked him to do then is to give me an account for why he was even saying these things. So I'd say, hey, would you show me where the flying spaghetti monster accounts for his own attributes? I couldn't do it. Why? Because what he's doing is borrowing from the Christian worldview in an attempt to make it look silly. So all you got to do is then turn around and ask him. You know, he'd then say, well, have you asked a flying spaghetti monster into your heart? I'd say, has the flying spaghetti monster told me to ask him into his heart? If so, please show me. And so he'd just go default by asking another silly question. And so that's when I go back into what you need to do or what I think you can ask the unbeliever to give an account why these things are. And again, going and then when you do it, you go back to Christ of why he can make sense of anything. Because I think he will see the fallacies within his own reasoning. Um, why do you think he'll see the fallacies within his own reasoning? Well, I say he may. I, I'm in hopes that he will. <laughs> he may not. He may continue them. And not only that, I think we go back to, I think it was Second Timothy, where it talks about the more he does so, one of two things will can happen. He will begin to see the fallacies in his own reasoning, or um, he will go as he will continue in his vain babblings, and that will lead into more and more ungodliness, and his heart will become even more and more hardened to the truth that we're trying to reveal to him. So one of two things I think will happen there. So we got uh, about time to shut her down. The next one I didn't get into, um, and I'll save this for next week because I think it's very important, and that is going to be what I call internal apologetics or missing in action. And by that I mean apologetics within the church itself because I believe that's where apologetics should start. I'm kind of answering uh, your question earlier, you know, We'll see it demonstrated that Christ, the apostles, all of them, really, the majority of their time, they're not speaking to people that would label themselves as atheists. They're labeling themselves, they are speaking mostly to those who are the, of the religious group, right? And so what we're going to be looking at is internal apologetics. How do we give an answer to those within the church that may be guilty of apostasy? How do we guard ourselves from those errors? And I believe it starts in the church, and then as we're discipled, we go out and make that truth known to an unbelieving world. But I believe it starts in the church, and that's what we'll be getting into uh, next week. All right, go ahead. This is a question. Yeah, Just from ahead. your experience, when you start, if you're ever in a position, I'm sure when you first start out being a little more, you know, into debating different doctrines and just anything, mm -hmm. you know, whether UNT or wherever, when you get to a position where you feel like you're over your head, do you automatically need your back to the gospel? I mean, how do you usually segue? If you feel like your questions are either going off, not so much on a rabbit trail, but where you really feel like you can't handle whatever's coming at you, what usual, what approach do you usually take? Right, that was a question we kind of addressed in the first week, and here's how I would answer that. No, no problem. Uh, even if I can answer it, right? And let's say I have, a, I think, a, a really good answer. <laughs> let's again, and I'll kind of use this, because a lot of people say, well, how could, a God, how could a loving God, you know, allow babies to drown in the flood? Stuff of that nature. How could God, you know, 
people, there were witches that burned in the Salem witch trials. You know, that's terrible. So I would never love a God that, you know, would allow these things to happen. And maybe I have a good answer, right? But, the, but I want to redirect it because that may be intentional or it may not be intentional. They're questions. So I just started off with saying, hey, you know, that's a really good question. I'd love to answer that and get into that and really kind of old, unfold what I believe my answer is. But let me ask you this. What does that directly have to do with your personal sin against God, right? How, if, they, if they come up with a long term uh, that would, they think that would promote the idea of uh, evolution, they say, well, here's the term uh, that would refer to a transitional fossil, right? Let's say I have no clue what they're talking about. So how do I answer that? I can just say, you know, that's a great question. But I want to know how does that, and you can say, I think what you say and how you say it can, can really be a factor. And say, so, you know, that's a great question. We can look at these things together. But how does the age of the earth or these fossils really, you know, what does it have to do with your sin against the very God who created you? So even if I have the answer and it's a good, uh, I try and always just go back to the gospel. So if I have not laid that as a foundation, if I've already laid it as a foundation, I've already told them about their condition and their position before a holy God, then we can get into these things, but I don't use those arguments to try and prove God exists. I may just be talking, and that's why I love like answers in Genesis. Some of them may use those arguments to try and prove God exists, but some of them are still great in the sense of they're not trying to use it to prove God exists. What they're trying to do is prove perhaps the age of the earth which to me is an entirely different subject, right? And, so, and that's how I might answer it. Because if I try and remember, it's like, hey, if I try and remember, what did Bonson say in this situation? What, what would Van Til say? Then all I'm doing is trying to repeat and mimic what they say, rather than, it, you know, you're going to have a lot more confidence if you go to the Bible. And that way you can just go to the Bible and say, here's what Jesus said, because he's the ultimate authority, not Van Til, even though I love him. So, I think we're right there. All right.